Hey, good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday service. We gather in person and online every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. In person, uh, we are, for one more week, still wearing masks and socially distanced. Starting next week, um, if you can document that you are fully vaccinated, um, you can show that documentation to Janelle Centers, and um, we'll just check it once. It's just one and done confirmation, and she'll keep a list, and you don't have to wear a mask. Um, my full vaccination, my two weeks after my second shot was last Monday, so uh, starting next week, I won't wear a mask. Uh, this last week, uh, when I hit my two-week uh, thing, we went for a hike, and it was kind of the first time that I went somewhere and just didn't wear a mask. I was outside, and um, one time I did, though. I kept a mask with me, and I, I could tell that somebody coming down the trail was a little nervous. Just you could see it on her, on her face, and so I, I put the mask on, and she kind of loosened up, and her and her dog kept walking. We said hello, and we, we, we kept moving on by. So I still carry a mask with me, uh, even though I'm fully vaccinated, you know, because certain stores, certain places have those requirements. And, uh, you know, sometimes I want to make people comfortable and make them feel safe. And so uh, it's an easy thing to do to just pop it on. I don't even notice I have it in my pocket half the time. Um, so that's what we're doing starting next week. And then uh, other than that, uh, life is as normal. We are uh, meeting in person and online. Online church will continue, but we do encourage folks to start to think about when the right time to come back into full community is. I, I don't believe that the church ever shut down, and we will continue to have online service for a lot of different reasons, but uh, we believe in church as a community, as a family of believers, and so we want to be as connected as we can possibly be. If you have a Bible, open to the book of 1 John chapter 2, and then stick around at the end of the sermon as we have our time of worship through prayer. Hey, good morning again. If you have a Bible open to 1 John, uh, we are going to continue our study talking about how to live as Christians. Um, and we're going to look at 1 John chapter uh, 2, verses 12 through 14. And John writes, and he says, I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. The word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. This is God's word to us. And this morning, we want to talk about some of the unlikely disciples. What do I mean by that? I'll get to that in a minute. But he talks to three groups, three groups this morning, children, fathers, and young men. What does he say about children? He says, I'm writing to you children. Now, when you're John's age, like we said the other week, and you're in your early 90s, everyone's a kid. You're old enough to be everyone's dad. But the word he uses is very specific in the Greek, which John was writing in, in Greek when he wrote this letter, and the word he uses is very specific. It's not that he was saying, I'm writing to you young people. He says, I'm writing to you children. It's very specific that he's talking about kids. 
Now that's interesting to me because one of the things I appreciate about the Apostle John's writing is that he writes likely very uh, at least 10 years, if not two decades later than most of the other New Testament writers. John was the last of, of the leaders of his generation still left alive and ministering. And so he's writing and speaking to a church in a different season of life. Likely, he is sort of the pastor emeritus, the teaching pastor of the churches in Ephesus. And the, uh, the Ephesian church, of course, was started by Paul and then later pastored by Timothy. And, and now John is living there and he's in his last days on this earth. And he's dealing with the first generation of the church that is made up of church kids. Uh, I grew up in the church. My, my, uh, my mom was a convert. Um, my, my dad was raised in a Christian home. But I grew up in church. The people that Paul and Peter and Matthew and Mark and Luke and James and those guys, they were writing to were largely original converts. Now John is writing to the first century of church kids. And he's writing to the, the actual children of the church. Why is he doing that? Why is he speaking to them? I firmly believe that kids are not the future of the church, that they are part of the church here and now. Um, that, that our children are, you know, there's, there's kind of two ways that churches deal with kids. They either deal with kids like parents do, which is go play over there, or they deal with kids like grandparents do, which is sort of put them on display. And I've seen churches interact with kids both ways. Kids are not the future, they are the now. And, and so uh, he's saying, hey, I'm going to treat you like real people. I'm going to treat you like you are a vital part of this church. And I think as a church, we, we do pretty good on that. I think the challenge for us is as we come out of COVID and as we come out of pandemic and we've, we've done kids stuff the best we could with all the limitations of, of what we've been dealing with is, is what's the best way that we can embrace our children as the church of now. Now, what does John say about the kids? He says two things. He says, I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven. And then he says in verse 14, I write to you because you know the Father. So he says, they're forgiven and they're knowledgeable. I believe that a child can come to faith. People ask sometimes, what happens when a child dies? And it's an uncomfortable question, isn't it? I believe that the child who dies is, as John says in verse 12, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his, Jesus' name. And so most people would say, well, there's this thing called the age of accountability. And so if a child dies below the age of accountability, they're not accountable. They're not adults. They can't make their own choice. So God because of Jesus' death on the cross, accepts them into heaven. Well, when's the age of accountability? Ooh, 
because there's no Bible verse for that. And so generally what people do is they say, well, you know, the, the Jews, uh, their age of accountability is 12. And that's when uh, Jesus taught in the temple. Uh, the bar mitzvahs and the bat mitzvahs are at 12. So 12, that's, the, that's it. Yeah, 12. Maybe. I don't know for sure. And here's the thing that's confounding. I believe that I placed genuine faith in Jesus Christ when I was four years old. My wife... Uh, did not grow up initially in a Christian home. And her mom, who was not a Christian at the time, put my wife and my brother-in-law in a Christian uh, daycare. And my wife came to faith around age you know, six or seven at that daycare. Well, that's below the age of accountability. So what do you do with that? My personal belief is that there is absolute fairness with God. In fact, I would say um, his grace and mercy extend far beyond what, what is fair, what my sins deserved, what was my fair due. And his grace and his mercy have extended forgiveness to me that I don't deserve. It's unfair. I trust that there's no child that dies that, that is going to receive anything less than, than love from God. I believe that fully. But I also don't like giving somebody a uh, false assurance. So I, I believe that we should extend the gospel to children as much as we can. I'm not trying to, you know, indoctrinate them. Let them know. Let them, let them be knowledgeable. Let them know that there is the choice of forgiveness and mercy. Um, I, I extend communion. If, if a child professes faith and says, I want to take communion, I see nothing in the scripture forbidding it. So I extend it to them. What about baptism? I won't baptize a baby. I don't see any place for that in scripture. And honestly, I, I, uh, I don't want to give somebody false assurance. I've known people who said, oh, I was baptized as a baby. I'm good. No, says who? Um, I would prefer to not baptize a child. And the reason is, and this may, this may make sense to nobody else, but if you, if you were ever a youth pastor, you've been there when students in, in their you know, later high school years figure things out, come to faith in Jesus, and then part of their testimony is, yeah, I got baptized when I was a child, but it, I didn't understand it. It didn't, it didn't really mean anything to me. But now I really am following Jesus. And... Um, that's not an uncommon story. In fact, I joked with a friend of mine who was saying that, you know, he, he was thinking it was time for his, his kids to get baptized. And I said, you're just giving them the first line in their testimony when they, when they become a Christian. And um, he was a little offended, but then I explained to him, you know, my many experiences of that as a youth pastor. And he's like, oh, okay, I get what you're saying. So if, if like a seven-year-old really wanted to get baptized, I'd probably do it. But I would also encourage parents not to f push their kids towards something um, and, and let them find their way on that. That's just personal opinion. I'm not giving you a command from the Lord. I'm just giving you kind of my take. I want to, as much as possible, embrace the kids that God has placed in our church and say, hey, they're part of our church, and how can we treat them as a legitimate part of our church? Um, I I'll tell you, the best thing we have done in, a, in, in months, and maybe all year, was uh, 
was Easter and the kids were like equally part of the service. And, um, and then, you know, all the folks hiding Easter eggs in the, in the, uh, in the sanctuary. It was wonderful. Then he speaks to fathers and he says, you have, you know, he says, I'm writing verse 13. You know him who is from the beginning. You know him, Jesus, who is from the beginning. You can have experience and knowledge in your faith. There are a lot of Christians who feel like it's a choice between one or the other, experience or knowledge. And there are Christians who all they want is the experience. I want to just empty my emotions out when we sing together. Um, I want to find you know, prophecy and I want the experience. Uh, they like the mystical. They like the mystery. And then there are Christians who just love knowledge. I want to know truth, history, doctrine, theology, and everything for them is about having their, their ducks in a row and all of their Bible answers right. John's saying you can have both. Hey, I'm writing to you fathers because you know Jesus. You've experienced Jesus. That, that it's not just head knowledge for you, but this is something you, it's a, a gut level. You have felt it. But you also know him. And he puts a theological, a doctrinal thing. Jesus is from the beginning. He is, he, he is not created. He is the creator. Some Christians just want to know Jesus and some Christians just want to know about him. And John's saying you can do both. Now it's interesting to me that in verse 13 he says, I am writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. And then what does he say in verse 14? I am writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. Why does he say the same thing twice? To children he writes something different. To young men he writes something different. Why does he repeat himself when it comes to fathers? I like what uh, one of my favorite Bible commentators, David Guzik, I like what he says about this. He says, we might think, well, isn't there more? It's fine for these fathers to know Jesus, but shouldn't they go beyond? What he's saying is, isn't there something deeper? And then he goes on to say, this repetition reminds us that there is no beyond. There is nothing better, more important, more satisfying than knowing Jesus. There was a study published about 10, 12 years ago, and it looked at the happiness of Americans. And they said for Americans, especially American men, it was sort of an inverse bell curve. You know, your happiness increased as you got older. And then about your late 30s, it started to decrease. Your mid-40s, your mid-50s, and then it went back up. And the thinking was, I'm just going to be general here, but somewhere between age 45 and 55, you came to acceptance that this is all there was. I don't know how old you were when you realized that you weren't going to play baseball. I don't know how old you were when you realized that you weren't going to be a, uh, a warrior princess or uh, that, you, that you probably weren't going to be president or that you probably weren't going to, you know, whatever it is, whatever dream or aspiration you had as a child. And then at some point you go, you know what? 
I'm not that fast. That was me anyway. I'm not that fast. I don't think I'm ever going to play baseball for the Seattle Mariners. I had that realization, and I remember it was in third grade when I realized I'm probably not going to be a professional baseball player. Maybe your delusion went a little longer. Maybe your delusion left a little earlier. But I think there are a lot of men, a lot of fathers, who kind of are looking around going, is this all that there is? I mean, I'm doing the right things. I'm loving my wife and family. I'm taking care of, you know, my, my responsibilities. I'm, I'm trying to, you know, but is this all there is? And what John is saying is, when it comes to Jesus, this is more than we need. That if you're looking, I, I, I used to say this a lot. I need to say it more. If you come to church for any other thing than Jesus, you're going to be disappointed. And if you are looking for something more than Jesus, we will be disappointed because there, there's nothing higher, greater, more wonderful than having the knowledge of God in our lives. He's saying, I'm writing to you because you know him. You know him. I'm not wasting my time with you. You know, I'm not writing to somebody who doesn't know Jesus and trying to say, hey, this is how you live as a Christian. Waste of time. But you know Jesus. You've had your sins forgiven. You've, you've stood and withstood, and now you stand as a man of God. I'm writing to children because they are forgiven, but I'm writing to you men because you know him and you know about him. Now, maybe you're a father and you're saying, I, I don't know if I fit that bill. It's never too late to start. We can always grow in our knowledge of Jesus, both experientially and in wisdom. We can grow. In, it's not hard to get on Amazon and get some good Christian books. It, it's not hard to do that. And, and, and experientially, there's always something that we can grow in. Lord, I, I read the scripture and I see the fruits of the Spirit. I see the gifts of the Spirit. Do you want me to grow there? Help me to grow there. Lord, I, I see this need in, in, in the world. Where are you leading me? How are you speaking to me? I'm, I'm so thankful that this isn't all that there is, that, that we're always growing, that I can grow in prayer, that I can grow in faith, that I can grow in knowledge and wisdom. You're saying, is there more? I'm saying Jesus is enough. Then finally, he writes to young men. And he calls them strong overcomers. He says in verse 13, I am writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. And then again in verse 14, I write to you young men because you are strong. The word of God lives in you. and You have overcome the evil one. John describes something that is completely the opposite of our modern stereotype of young men. If you were to get people and say, what do you think of when you think of young men? I don't know that the, the idea of strong overcomers would come to mind. Oftentimes when we think of young men, we think of guys who are trying to figure it out, guys who are, who are stuck in ruts of bondage, of addiction, of complacency. 
But that's not what John sees. I'm going to tell you this. If you're a young man and you're saying, I don't, I, I don't know, I don't think I'm a strong overcomer, I don't, I don't think that, that I can really be that kind of young man, John believed in you. And I believe in you. Not because of you, but because of Jesus who is in you. That's what he says when he says the word of God is in you. We might hear that and think, oh, the Bible's in these guys. But when John says the word of God, he means Jesus. Remember, they didn't have the completed Bible at that point, although they were getting close. When, when John says the word of God, he means Jesus is in you. That's why they were strong overcomers, not because that they were so good, but because Jesus was in them. And so John believes in you, and I believe in you because I believe in what Jesus can do and will do in your lives. Now, even though when John says the word of God and he means Jesus directly, I think by extension, he probably also means the Bible as much as possible. Why do I say that? Uh, You can, on your own time, read Psalm 119, verses 9 through 16. I'm going to say that again. Psalm 119, verses 9 through 16. And what does it say? It says, your word, speaking of the word of God in the sense of the scripture, your word have I hidden in my heart so that I might not sin against you. Can I tell you the truth? I think that there are a lot of young men who need much, much more of the word of God in them so that they may not sin. They need much more of the spirit of God in them so they may not sin. It's interesting to me too that he says young men, not sons, young men. Because some of these guys would not be the sons, physical sons of the church, but they would have been converts, young men who came to faith And that's so important that the church have a focus outside of our walls to those who are not yet believers. Now, somebody might say, and rightly so, because that's one of the things that I thought of when I was starting to work on this study. What about the ladies? Where are they? Well, remember I said that today the big idea was unlikely disciples? Women are the backbone of just about any church ever. I have been around a lot of different churches over the years. I grew up in the church, and I've spent most of my adult life working or serving in churches in some role, either staff level or a volunteer leader capacity. I've been around big churches, small churches. Women are the backbone of just every church. I have never found a church that had trouble getting women to come to church. I've never had a church that has said, you know what, all the guys are serving, but we have a trouble getting the women to serve. I've never seen that, and I'm guessing neither of you. John is speaking to who in our day are the three groups of people least likely to come to church. And you may say, what? Was that the problem back then? I don't think so. But that being said, I have found that people are people. And my suspicion is that John is speaking generally to people. And those same generalities exist today. 
we, we think, oh, people that lived 2,000 years ago, very different. Maybe, maybe they dressed differently, they had a different perspective, but they're still people. One of the most vivid nights of my life that I have in my memory was a Friday night. I was living in England, and I was living in the north part of Manchester, England. And Manchester's a big city, a few million people. And, and I had a meeting that I had to go to in the south part of town. And it was going to take me, it was a three-hour round trip, hour, hour and a half by bus and train to get to where I was going, hour, hour and a half coming back, just depending on if you make the connection from one train to the bus or the bus or whatever. And at the time, I was reading the book Through Gates of Splendor by Elizabeth Elliot. And if you've never read it, I highly recommend it. Fantastic book. And Elizabeth Elliot and her husband Jim Elliot were missionaries in Central America. It's a really well-known story in the 1950s. And they were trying to contact this unreached people group with the message of Jesus. And Jim Elliot and a few other missionaries went to contact this tribe and they were killed. They ran them through with spears and their bodies dumped in the river. It's a very well-known story. A couple years ago, they made a movie about it called End of the Spear. And then later, Elizabeth Elliot went again to that tribe and they didn't kill her this time and she was able to lead the men who murdered her husband to faith in Jesus. But here's why I'm mentioning it. See, that story took place in the 1950s in Central America. And in the book, Elizabeth Elliot describes the culture that they were ministering to, uh, not of the uncontacted tribe, but of, of villages and towns that they were ministering to um, that were you know, very aware of, of modern society. And she described these big fiestas that they would have. We would describe them as raging keggers, these massive drunken parties that they would have. And she described how fights would break out. They were dangerous. Violence would happen. People get drunk, they'd fight. Um, abuse and assault, you know, nobody talked about it, but there was, you know, uh, uh, vi sexual violence happening. Um, mothers would get so drunk and then they'd roll over, unaware of what they were doing, they'd roll over on top of their babies. And so sometimes after one of these fiestas in the morning, you would hear the mournful wails of mothers who had killed their own babies in a drunken stupor. And as I was reading that chapter that Friday, I left my house and I saw that my neighbors across the street had had some friends over and their kids and the, and the friends' kids were all left somewhere between ages three to eight and the eight-year-old, nine-year-old girl was left in charge and they were all left in the house by themselves and the parents who were walking ahead of me went to the local pub. And then I went on to catch my bus to get to where I was going. And on the way into central Manchester and then you, you make the connection and you go to where you're going. It's like a spoke going into a central hub and then you go out to where you're going. I saw more of this, you know, people on their way to clubs and pubs and out to party. It's Friday night. And on my way back, I saw more of this. I saw people getting into fights. I saw, you know, guys who were so drunk and they're just taking off their clothes for no reason. Uh, I saw, um, all kinds of things. I was on the bus, the last bus I had to get on. And there was, uh, some a couple of different couples and they're all in their late 50s to mid 60s and this one gal I remember in particular was just hammered and she's like 65 years old and she's just out publicly drunk and then I get home and I look across the street 
and I can see the kids are just running crazy in that house. And then, you know, it was late. It was like 11 o'clock at night and the kids are still up watching TV, no parental supervision. And then hour or two later, I can hear the parents because they're drunk and I can hear them. Uh, they come home. And I thought, as I'm reading this book, thinking about this primitive, quote-unquote, culture in the 50s in Central America and this modern, quote-unquote, culture in the 2000s in Europe, it's the same thing, right? People are people. The least likely person to go to church is a single guy age 18 to 29. Married guys age 18 to 29 aren't far behind. In your church experience, how many times have you had a mom who brings the kid to church, but the dad comes sometimes, but then for months won't come? Or, or the wife who comes in every prayer meeting, pray for my husband, he's not a believer. Or they do come, but they're just totally unconnected. They're totally uninvolved. They'd rather be fishing. They have no interest in growing in their faith. And then children, quite honestly. So many churches would give their, their left, you know, left eye, their, their whatever, you know, to have children like we have at our church. And then there are churches that do have children, but it's, it's kind of like a, a fake out because they're not actual kids of the church. They're like the grandkids of the church. And the moment they hit like eight years old, boom, they're gone, you know, do something else. These are the three groups that are least likely to be in church to be part of church, and not just a Sunday morning attendance, but actual connection to the people of God. So you say, what about the ladies? We have no trouble with that. Do you treat the sick or you, do you treat the healthy? You go, the doctor goes where the sick people are. And so when we talk about reaching people, we want to reach kids, we want to reach young men, we want to reach fathers because they are the ones who are least likely to respond. But at the same time, this is a hopeful chapter. This is a hopeful chapter that God does get a hold of fathers, that God does get a hold of young men, that God does get a hold of children. And his work is not limited by demographics or statistics. His work goes on and on and on, and we can be part of that work together as a family of believers. Now, I don't know how God has spoken to you this morning, I don't know what that message stirs up in you. I know that uh, God wants to do his work in us. And Jesus is enough. So however God has spoken to you this morning, we're going to go into a time of response in prayer. And I'd invite you to respond to him. If you're not a believer, Jesus is calling out for you to know him. If you are a believer, Jesus is reaching out so that you can grow in him. And if you're saying, what's more? Jesus is saying, I'm enough. Let's respond to God in prayer. Well, now that we've spent time in worship by hearing the teaching of the word of God, we want to extend our time of worshiping God through responding to him. And uh, on Sunday mornings, we respond primarily through singing together. But that's not so engaging online. Um, but there are plenty of good worship songs out there on YouTube and other platforms. 
Uh, we also give of our resources, faithonhill.com backslash give, if, if the Lord's leading you that way. But this morning, let's respond in worship through prayer. I'm going to read from the book of Ephesians, and I want you, as I read, whether you type it out in the chat, whether you say it out loud, whether you say it in your hearts, whether you write it in the notes you're taking, just call out the words, the phrases that God speaks to you as we hear his word. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from, for whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know that this love that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine according to his power, that is at work within us. To him be all glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Invite us to enter a posture of prayer, whatever that looks like for you. Standing, sitting, eyes folded, uh, eyes closed, hands folded, hands raised, eyes open, however that works. God, our Father in heaven, thank you that you have given us the fullness of who you are. And you have done so through Jesus, your Son, our Savior. And I ask that your Holy Spirit would increase the measure of your fullness so that we may overflow with hope through the power of your Spirit. Thank you, Lord. Now I'm going to read that passage again, but I want to invite us, and feel free to use the pause button, but I want to invite us as I read that passage again, think about what you see Jesus doing in that passage. What is Jesus doing? What is God the Father doing? What is the Holy Spirit doing in this passage? Again, Ephesians 3 verse 14, for this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray out of his glorious riches that he may strengthen you with the power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever 
and ever. Amen. Oh Lord, thank you that we can see your work in our lives and in this world. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, that you dwell in your people. That you dwell in your people and you root us in your love. And Lord, love seems hard to come by. Hate seems strong. Division seems strong. Love seems scarce, but we pray that you would reveal how you are rooting us in your love. Rooting us with you, rooting us with one another. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Lord, I pray as we end our time responding to you that you would open our hearts to what you would lead us to do, how you would lead us to serve you, how you would lead us to love others, how you would lead us to be made more like Jesus. And I pray these things, and in Jesus' name we ask, and we hope, and we trust, and we pray. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you this week, and we'll see you next Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m.